Amen. Well, guys, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs tonight. I want to invite you to be in the Word of God with us. If you want to open up a, a copy of the Scriptures that hopefully you brought or you need one in front of you, there's a Scripture there. You can use an electronic device or you can also use the little Bible reading booklet that we have provided for you guys for the book of Proverbs. Simply put in this book is actually just the Scripture uh, with a couple little, you know, other little t- tiny little additions in there or some commentaries and such. But most of it is just the passage of, Ro- of Proverbs chapter 21. And we're inviting you, if you want to use this, to use it in a way to be able to track with us verse by verse in the book of Proverbs. Now, before we kind of quickly explain that as we do each week, I do want to reach out to those who are online and saying, if you're looking to be a part of this and you're thinking, well, I would like one of those, well, it is available for you. You can go to our website at calvaryroswell.com. Go into the messages under today's message. You'll find a little download uh, link. You click that. It'll say notes. You can download the notes, and it'll have a PDF of this booklet uh, that you can uh, print out or you can write in or, you know, or, or, or just use it on an electronic device. Either way would work really with the desire that you would be able to work through each verse and kind of be able to mark your way through the verses. Now, we have a little legend that we're using. It's actually in your booklet, you know, back on the back page. back You can find it there where it has just kind of an explanation of what we're looking for. We're going to focus on good things, and we're going to use colors for the screen. We're going to talk about use green for that. We'll talk about bad. We'll talk about statements of fact, and then purple, you know, using it to focus on God. And then we'll kind of look at what's the cause and what's the result, and do our best to kind of help you be able to follow the contrast, to be able to see some of the nuggets inside each uh, of the verses. And so we're hoping that, that that would work inside of you and draw you into those things that God has for you. So with that as a name, let's go before him right now and ask that he would help us, that he would give us ears to hear. So I'm going to lead you in prayer, hoping you would pray as well, and just ask that God would indeed uh, speak to us through his word. Father, I think about the song we sang just a couple of moments ago, just coming and saying, you have the words of life. Lord, they're found in you. They're not found other spaces. We could, we could look in all the libraries and spaces around the world for, for human wisdom and human knowledge, and it would be dry in that sense. But your words are not only true, they are life-giving. They are the only space where, where life is found. And Lord, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the hope that's in that, and I come and ask for it right now. Help us to hear. Help us to understand. Help us to know what you're trying to tell us. Speak to us in the midst of this book of Proverbs and do so in such a way, Lord, that I pray for every person here that one of these Proverbs, or a nugget even, from one of these Proverbs, would so land that they will know tonight that that's what you had for them to hear. God, would you do far beyond what I could do, work in the midst of that by your power, your honor, and your glory, and help us to hear, help us to understand, and then work good in our, our lives right now. We ask for it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love the invitation that God gives in the book of James where he simply tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I love that God looks at us and says, do you want it? 
Do you, do you feel like you need wisdom? If you feel like you lack wisdom, God says, then you can come to me. You can come to me and ask, and I will give it. I will give it in a way that wouldn't reproach you. I wouldn't embarrass you. I would, I would do this. And this is such an incredibly good promise. Now, I don't know where you are with this. I don't know where it comes across in your life. If you find yourself thinking, well, I don't really need that. I think I kind of got everything figured out. Uh, that's great. I mean, is that a good word for you? If it's where you are, it's not where I am. I mean, I can honestly look and think, I, I need lots of that. <laughs> I mean, wisdom, which is the idea of knowing how to do the right thing in the right way at the right time, to navigate this confusing world and handle life and handle situations in a way that would be right, well, I recognize my need for it. And so with great joy, I would come and say, God, I want that. And God says he's giving that. Now, he says to come and ask him, and hopefully we are, but certainly we'd have to recognize that part of his answer is what he's spoken to us, that he's given us, you know, part of the answer to that is his word. And we think about where we are in the book of Proverbs, and it is a book of wisdom. It is a book that unpacks that, where God would say, okay, I will give this to you. You know, I find myself just wanting to bring you afresh to that, to a place where I hope that you would both see the need of that and God being the source of it. You know, think about where we are. If you've been journeying with us so far in the book of Proverbs, we now have crossed kind of the, made our way two-thirds of the way through the book of Proverbs as we kind of move into Proverbs 21 this evening. And I don't know how that lands with you. I'm just going to be a little bit honest and just say, you know, a little bit, you know, Proverbs is like, wow, it's just, you know, he's kind of teaching through it and going through it. You know, you find yourself repeating and saying things that you've said. And, and I can recognize that in one sense, that's a little bit of a challenge. You know, before we did the book, studying the book of Proverbs, I did some research and just kind of was curious, like how many people have taught the book of Proverbs and, you know, how did that work? And I looked through it and I found a lot of uh, guys and stuff that I respect didn't actually teach the book of Proverbs. They kind of taught a uh, overview of the book of Proverbs and they would say, they would have one week on parenting and, you know, one week on, you know, whatever and kind of coalesce it all together. And that was kind of interesting, but I found myself thinking that's not how God wrote it. I mean, one of the ways that we do, we teach the Bible on Wednesday nights is verse by verse, making our way through it, and yet it's challenging. And maybe it's not. Maybe for you, you're like, no, it's, it's working good. I hope so. But I wanted just to kind of begin this evening and say, I don't know about you, but I am, again, very clearly recognizing need in my life. Very clearly coming and saying, God, I lack wisdom. I lack you know, the ability to do that well all the time. And so I want to just come and say, God, I need it. I want to come in and, and say, God, give me this in a fresh way and hoping that as we approach it this evening, that God would work that in a way that would be his supply into your life that would help you grow in wisdom and, and help me grow in wisdom. May God make it so. Well, with that as an invitation, let's launch our way in. We begin in verse 1 of Proverbs 21 where it simply tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So the king's heart, that's kind of where it begins, and it really is looking at, at this reality. And the idea would be, in many ways, in that culture, the most powerful person that there was. I mean, the, the king, he, he has authority in the land. He has the one that can make everything happen and kind of determine everything that's there but Proverbs lets us know that that place that seems so powerful is in God's hands. The king's hand, heart, is in the hand of the Lord. That God is the one who could work, and, and he can turn it. And he gives us his picture, like rivers of water, 
Like you could almost imagine a, a river running, you know, down a place and you could watch, you know, somebody kind of redirecting and, you know, kind of thinking, okay, we're going we're gonna to block it up this way. We're going to send it over this way. We're going to remove it this way and kind of work. Says that's what God can do uh, into the heart of a king. He can turn it wherever he wishes. This is a glorious nugget of wisdom that helps us gaze a quick moment into the sovereign work of God, into his power, and just a place of being able to rest in this. There's no way that this, um, you know, is, is God causing everything that happens in the life of a ruler. It's not, you know, in any way excusing some of the horrible things that people did as if God were leading that, but the idea is that there's not anything that he can't do that God could work through, and you could look through the, the passages of Scripture, and you could think through pictures of this. We think through Pharaoh, who, you know, tried to resist, you know, the children of Israel getting out of the land of Egypt, and God said, I'm going to turn his heart. He is going to let you go. Like, the most powerful man in the world is not going to be able to stop God being able to release his people. We think about when Israel gets sent into the land of Babylon, and God is able to raise up Cyrus so that Cyrus sends them back. He says, Cyrus is going to be my servant. I'm going to use this man to compel my people to come back. We think about the, the beginning of the New Testament and just even Jesus, you know, ending up in Bethlehem and how God uses Caesar Augustus to send out this edict across the land that would redirect everybody to get where, where Jesus needed to be. And there's something in that that just causes us to look in and say, my God is big. He's bigger than anything there is in this world. And just this nugget alone would provide a peace in your life. It doesn't always bring everything into understanding. It raises questions as much of the reality of who God is can be that way in our lives. But there is a sense that we look at our world and, and not feel that place of fretting or like, oh, I don't know. You know, just the, the powers that be, they, they seem like they're really, what if they could resist what God is doing? They cannot and there's just a comfort in this. There's a comfort of, of longing for this. And if he can do that in the heart of a king, then he can do it in so many other spaces. He can do it in the midst of, of our world. He can do it in the midst of judges. He can do it in the midst of supreme courts. He can do it in the midst of, of supervisors. He can do it. It's like, God, I, I want to believe. I want to believe that, you know, that there's not a sense of looking at this and thinking, well, God, you're without resource you know, this person's resisting you, and it's like, God can turn the heart of a king. And so just believing that becomes incredibly helpful, and again, just a nugget of wisdom that would bring you to peace in the midst of a world that could be so incredibly scary. So may that land and draw you to a place of just recognizing how big our God is. Well, with that, he then turns in verse 2, and he says it this way. He says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes but the Lord weighs the hearts. Every way of a man, every way that a man would look or choices that he would make or courses that he would seek to go down, it so often becomes places that are right in our own eyes that all of us have a capacity of justifying ourselves, of kind of working where we think, well, you know, th this is right for me or this, this works in my life. And really, honestly, it really is that place where most of us can struggle with this and across our world can be that way. But then it just simply says, but, in contrast to that, the Lord, God, the one that we're looking at, so we use the color again, purple, because we're getting a, a glimpse into his character, he's the one that actually weighs the hearts. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Proverbs, you might be thinking, didn't we already talk about this? We did. It's almost identical uh, to chapter 16, verse 2. 
that says pretty much the same thing there as it says here. And that's always life-giving. That's always like, well, that's interesting. If God says it once, it's good. If he says it again, we definitely needed to hear it again, uh, to come into a space that would remind us of that. Because, you know, we do live in this world where for so many people, they can live their lives thinking that as long as I feel okay uh, with who I am and what I'm doing, everything's fine. And most people are that way. That they kind of think, well, you know, I, I'm okay. I think, you know, I think, you know, what my choices are right or, or where I am. And yet he's telling us that's not the space that you and I are meant to live. I think about Paul the Apostle, who gives me one of my favorite examples of this when he's describing even the way that he did ministry and the way that he did things. He talked about how that, you know, we, we need to be like faithful servants who are going to give an account to our Lord. And as he thinks about that, he just says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or even a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. As he thinks about this idea, this need for faithfulness, he says, now you got to understand where I am in this. It's not that I'm putting myself under your judgment that what you think about me determines whether, you know, what I am or what I'm not is good. He says, I'm not even going to put myself into human authority in that, but let's go further. I'm not even going to trust my own judgment in that. Like, that's not going to be what, what surrenders it for me. He says, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. He says, here's where I am. I know I'm going to give an account for who I am. I know that I'm going to stand before the Lord. And on that day, it's not, you know, the, the one that's going to determine, it's not going to be the world and what the world said about me or what the most people thought about me. And it's not even what I think about me. I want to stand before him. And I want to hear what he says about me. You know, for us in Christ, it's hopefully that day standing before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ where we want to hear well done good and faithful servant. Like, I want to say, God, was I faithful? Did I do what you wanted me to do? And he says, that's what we're really living for, because God's the one who really knows, that he's the one that sees what no human court could see, what no people could see, and if we're all together honest, what you cannot even see. For so often, we'd say, I don't even know my own heart. I mean, could I really know why I do what I do? And it's like, instead, we should be coming to this and saying, God, help change me. Because I want to know that I'm going to stand before you. And I want to live my life into a place that I'm aiming for that. That's a very different course, by the way. It's a very different course than many in our world live. Because again, many in our world live by, if it feels good, do it. You know, if I'm happy, if I feel okay with it, then why does it matter to you what I do? You know, and if at the end of the day, that's what I'm really looking for. And most people, Live by some version of that. You're not meant to. You're meant to grow into a way of wisdom and say, God, it's not me that I'm standing before, it's you. And so God began changing me. David would say it in Psalm 139, Lord, see if there's any wicked way in me. Like, lead me in the way that's everlasting. Like, search me out and continue changing me because I want to believe and live this way. And that would lead us into a very different way of doing life. But it's a good way. It's a good way that isn't, you know, as Paul said, I'm not, I'm not you know, kind of held by the, the judgments of everybody around me or even my own judgment because I could either be too hard on myself, I'll either be too critical, or I'll be too lenient. You know, I, I go one of the two ways really easily, and it's an unfair judgment. But to come before him who is merciful and just, it's a safe space. It's a good space. And seeking to draw ourselves out of that, he calls you and I to live our lives differently.
May God make it so. Well, with that in mind, we think about what he tells us next. In verse 3, he says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So it's a pretty cool principle. He says, here's the thing. To do what's right, to do the right thing, to be just, to handle situations right, to handle things and other people in a just way, that is more pleasing. That is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now, this is one of those nuggets that flows all the way through scriptures for you Bible students. You should be even able to pull out a few places where God addresses this over and over, where he highlights this fallacy that sometimes falls into the lives of God's people that they would think it's okay to, you know, do whatever I do Monday through Friday as long as I come to church, you know, and and somehow this would make everything better. One of my favorite places in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah begins to just rattle off God's concerns against the the nation of Israel, and he simply says it this way in Isaiah chapter 1, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of the assemblies, I cannot endure the iniquity and the sacred meeting. Now, he goes on and gives a few more verses that says the same thing, but it's enough for us tonight just to look at this one. And again, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you might not get this. If you are familiar, you'll recognize, but I thought all of those things were God asked for. Didn't God ask for new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies? Yeah, all those things were God's prescriptions for his people, but they've gotten into a bad place. They've gotten into a bad place where they do that you know, at their gathering of the Lord, and then they live their life any way they want the rest of the week, but think, because I do this, because I come to church, it's, it makes everything else okay. You know, you can do whatever you think want through the week, as long as you go to church, and that's going to make everything better, and God says, I hate it. I hate it. If you were to kind of reword this verse into a, a New Testament or a, a word today, God would say it this way. It's like, I hate your worship services. I hate when you pray. I hate when you guys grab hold of your Bibles and read that. I just hate that. And you're like, wait, what? Like, how could you say that? But he says it's because of where you're living. He says you need to wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil from the doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Like you should, the way that you're living your life needs to change because that's what I'm really looking for. That's what I'm really looking for. And so as it gives us a nugget in Proverbs, it again, it just kind of hopes to fix that. Because if you could see it, gathering together like we're doing this evening or gathering together on a Sunday, it's meant to be an overflow of our lives. It's not meant to be what enables us to live the rest of our lives however we want, as if somehow we could sin and do, you know, do all kinds of horrible things, you know, kind of people would say, yeah, you know, you can do it, you can go to the parties on Friday as long as you're at church on Sunday, you know, and it's like, well, that's not the way it's going to work. What it's meant to be is I'm living my life with Christ so that when I gather together, it's an overflow of my life, not an excuse. And so God would look at it right now and says, here's what I want. What would really please me is for you to live your life with me. And that would change the way that you would do the right thing on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and you would be doing things in justice. And then when you'd come together, it would be a joyful thing, and it invites us to a very different way of viewing even what we do here tonight. And again, it's just truth. It's just wisdom that's found all the way through the scriptures, but certainly invites you and I uh, to that kind of rescue. All right. Well, you can flip the page. If you're following along in the booklet, we'll go to verse 4. 
This is a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. A haughty look, a proud heart. They're kind of the same way of saying the same thing. The, the idea of arrogance, the idea of pride that is a huge issue in the Scriptures, huge issue in Proverbs that would highlight, hey, this is something that's wrong, to look down at people, uh, to feel yourself better than everybody else. That's what he's highlighting. But he adds a third, which the New King James Version, which is what I'm using, which is what's on the screen, uh, it says the plowing of the wicked. It's a really difficult Hebrew phrase. Um, different translations handle it differently. You might even have a little note in your Bible, if you're following along in that, that would tell us that the word plowing might even be better translated lamp, or that's one way it's translated. Many uh, Bible commentators would look at it and talk about it as a lamp. In the midst of it, there is a place where, again, it could kind of go into plowing, but it's a really hard way uh, to even determine it. And so it leaves a lot of Bible students thinking, okay, so what are we saying? Well, if it's the idea of being a lamp, it is probably more in flow with the verse, because what is he saying in the midst of this? You know, the, the way that you view your life, pride, haughty look, or a proud heart, or the plowing, or the light of the wicked, it would be this way, you know, that the way that you are navigating the course in front of you, he says, all of this for the wicked, it's sin. That, that what's happening in the midst of that is it's sin because of the way that they're doing that. I mean, I think about for you and I, we get that, you know, in uh, Psalm 119, it says, you know, that God's word is meant to be a lamp under our, our path. That we would say, okay, this is going to show me, you know, how I navigate the choices that I make. But he's letting us know here are these wicked, and for them, it's pride. It's arrogance, and the lamp that is guiding in that sense their choices it's sin. Without spending a whole lot more time in this, it's an interesting reality because we're not talking about necessarily the acts of sin, but the motivations. He says, here's what it is. He says, it, it, God is grieved because the choices that they're making are flowing out of heart, of a heart that's prideful and arrogant, and the way that they're navigating these things, all of it becomes something that grieves our God, that he looks at it, and what he's really interested in is, again, the why, you know, that getting into the heart of who we are. And that's a big part of the book of Proverbs and certainly this chapter where God is showing us, you know, that he's interested in what's happening inside of us, where he just told us, you know, that, you know, God weighs the hearts. He's, he's able to look and think, so why do you do what you do? And, and that's where he's really seeking to navigate. And so probably, again, here showing us on the negative side, those who are doing it poorly. Then in verse 5, it says, The plans of the diligent lead surely, surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. So the plans of the diligent, the idea of, of making plans, of, of being wise, and then being just in, intentional and faithful and purposeful in the way that you do that to be diligent. He says in life, that would lead to, to, to plenty. That would bring blessing. That would do good things. In contrast, those of everyone who is hasty, those of everyone who, instead of making good plans and being diligent, it really highlights an idea of, of laziness and almost of being rushed all the time, of just, you know, constantly just kind of being carried along by everything else that's there. He says, that's going to lead uh, to poverty. That's not going to go well. Now, this is a really good proverb, by the way, and it's helpful. 
It's helpful for a number of reasons, but one of them is this. If you're tracking with us in Proverbs, we've been talking about, you know, how we make plans. And one of the things we talked about, like in Proverbs 16.9, is it says, you know, man makes plans, God directs steps. And that's true. And we talked about it even last week, that we talked about, hey, that part of it is to come to an understanding is that God doesn't give us plans. God directs steps. He guides our lives one step at a time. It's a beautiful understanding of the way that God looks in our lives. But if you took that all by itself, you might come to the conclusion that making plans is evil. Like, okay, well, you know, you just shouldn't make any plans. I mean, that's what God is saying. He's just saying, you know, plan making is bad. And that is never the case. It's never the case that, we, that in one sense we would be called to laziness or we'd be called to not making plans. We're just made to make submissive plans where James would say, you know, and we're going to come and say, well, if the Lord wills, this is where we're going to go. And if the Lord wills, this is what I'm hoping to do this next year. And if the Lord would work that. And so we're invited to a submission life where we're saying, okay, God, you could redirect me at any moment. You're God and you, can, you have full purview to, to affect my life, but it doesn't make us lazy. And so it just simply calls us, hey, you know, those who make plans and are diligent with those plans, like, okay, I'm, I'm thinking it through and then I'm working the details and I'm making them happen, that, that, that goes well. That's, that's a good place in life. But to be hasty, to be this person that, you know, has no plans and it's just pretty much being drug along and everything's a rush. It's like, well, you know, you know, you know I, I have like six hours to do something that I should have been doing, you know, all summer, you know, all semester long kind of thing, but I made no plans yeah, ever to get anything done. And now I'm, it's like, that's not the way to live your life. That, that's a bad way to live your life. And he doesn't endorse that. So again, I like this, that it helps us just get a place of saying, no, this is good. We are to make plans, but submitted plans. All right. Well, verse six, kind of leaving that one going on to the next. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. So getting tre- treasure, um, gaining riches by having a lying tongue. We would call it oftentimes in our culture kind of a silver tongue, you know, that kind of person who can talk people out of anything, you know, who could, you know, lie or deceive and, and get people to do things because you're, you're, you're a good liar, uh, because you can do that, and, and you would work that. He says, so if you get treasure, you get things because you're a good deceiver, because you can manipulate and lie, and you can get people to do things. He says, here's what you need to understand about that. It's a fleeting fantasy, and you almost just have to try to imagine this. It's almost a visual thing. It's like, okay, you, you think you're getting something. It's not going that way. It's as if this way, it's a mirage. It's like you're pursuing something that you think this is going to go well for you, but instead of it being satisfying, what you're really pursuing is death. What you're really pursuing when you make that a course of life, it's as if you're on a road that's heading to destruction. And this is just so simply and powerfully true. That you'd look at somebody who would be living their lives this way, And I hope that there's just nobody in that space this evening, but I would be very remiss if I didn't say it. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're watching online right now, and honestly, you are the master of your own destiny. You you, kind of tell everybody everything. You give people whatever they want to hear, but you're pretty good at talking your way out of any problem. I mean, there's just not anything that you can't, you know, kind of silver tongue, you know, kind of work your way out of, and you kind of think you're doing well. Even you could sit here in church and go, look at me. Like, I, you know, nobody even really knows, but look at me. And, it's, and, and God says, if that's the road you're on, 
If you're trusting in your lies and your deception, I can tell you where that's going. The road you're on, you might, it might look like it's going somewhere, but it's a mirage, right? It's this fantasy. It's a fleeting fantasy, and what you're really pursuing is death. You're on a road that's leading to your destruction. You're on a road that's leading to your spiritual and physical death. And he would just call you away from it. Again, I, I recognize that all of us probably need to hear this, but there are some. Again, you probably know this. There are some that, boy, they are good at this. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. It's not me. I, I'm not one of those people that can talk my way out of anything. I'm kind of one of the ones that's like, can I think about it for a minute? <laughs> you know, like, I, I mean, I just don't always feel like I have the right thing to say. I mean, I kind of tried to admit that earlier. It's like, I need wisdom because sometimes it's like, ah, I don't, but I, I know people. It's like, man, they always know the right thing to say. And, and they, they can turn anything, you know, anything into their, you know, pretty soon, you know, you're, you're mad at them and you go talk to them and pretty soon, you know, you're giving them your wallet, you know, it's like, well, sure, whatever you need, you know, like, oh, really? It's like, how did that happen? How did they, they always get their way. It's a terrible power in many ways because it can lead to your own destruction. It can lead to you a place. And so in this proverb, he's just saying, if this is you, understand this. It's not going to go well for you. Be rescued from that because you're on a road that's leading to your destruction. May God rescue. Verse 7, the violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. So again, highlighting some that are on a road through their own destruction. He says, so here's this person Instead of being a liar, they're cruel. They do violence. Uh, their, their power was not their tongue. Now their power is their arm or, or whatever they do. They can, they, they, they can force anything. They're strong. Uh, they can do you know, whatever they want. He says, but here's what you need to understand. That's going to destroy you. That's going to destroy you. I mean, if, if it's not your tongue, but it's your, your, your physical or, or financial power that's going to do that, he says, if that's where you are, that also is seeking your destruction. That is also going that way because you don't, you're not doing what's right. Because you refuse to do justice. You refuse to live that life of doing the right thing, of being pleasing in God's eyes, of being rescued from that. And, and one more time, he's just seeking to speak rescue. And, and, and I am as well. That there is a sense if you're trusting in your might or your wisdom and and you don't know Jesus and you're not being rescued from him then you are in a terrible space may God rescue may God rescue from those things which would lead to your demise and destruction you can flip the page verse 8 the way of a guilty man is perverse but as for the pure his work is right so the way of a guilty one, the one who is this person who's living and, and being driven by sin and being controlled by, by the guilt there, he says what that does is it leads to perversity. It leads to doing the wrong thing. But he gives us the, the way of the pure, the one who has been made clean and is walking, that would flow into doing what's right. Now, the essence of this proverb is really tying into a bunch of stuff that we've been talking about this evening, that motives matter that who you are drives what you do, that what you do, you know, it will flow out of that, so that he was able to say, hey, if this is where you are, this is what's going to produce this, and this is simply true. But can we pause for a moment and just address the reality? So here's the problem. So which one are you? Are you the guilty, the one who has been driven that, or, or are you the pure? Well, if we're all together honest, 
If we could really come to it, we'd come to the place of recognizing, I am the guilty one. I mean, there's no one righteous, no, not one. I mean, we come to a place that the Bible would let us know that we find ourselves at times, as we could honestly gaze into that sin is that that would master and seek to work, and outside of Christ, there's no hope. But I get to tell you again, that's the nugget of wisdom. That's the place because this is what Jesus does for us. I think about it when he talks about it in Thessalonians, speaking of the work of Christ. He says, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of peace himself do that which you could never do, that he would sanctify you completely, that he would make you pure. Yeah, that's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus did by coming and dying on the cross, paying for our sin, that we could be justified, that we could be made right with God, that we could be made pure. I just want to highlight to you again, that's amazing because this is what gives us hope to move us from the wrong space into the right space. But we could never get there on our own. could never get there on our own. If that's you here this evening, again, he would call you to this. If you're outside of Christ, he would call you to this. And if you're in Christ, there would be that space that you would recognize, this is who I am. I mean, he's this one that has brought in forgiveness. He's the one that brings in this rescue, but that should then work into our lives that he would continue that transformation inside of us. One of my favorite verses that speak about this is in Romans 12, uh, verse 2, where it says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So just a ton here, but let me just highlight See, here's the thing. Come surrender your life to God. I mean, it really tells us in the verse, first verse that because of everything that's ours in Christ, because of justification, because of what Christ has done to make us pure, we should now surrender our lives to God. We should come and say, God, I want to give you me. I, I want to give you, I want to respond by a surrendered life. And he says, don't let the world control you. Don't be pressed on the outside, but let him change you from the inside out. Let him transform you. Let him change the person that you are on the inside. Let him change that mindset that you have, those motives that you have, those thoughts that you have, so that you begin being changed on the inside. And if you allow him to do this work, changing you from the inside out, then your life will be walking in that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's pretty good. I'm just going to tell you, that's a good list. It's like, okay, good, acceptable, and perfect. That's like, yeah, how do I get there? Because God wants to change you from the inside out. Because what he's looking for is not hypocrites. He's not looking for people that just look good on the outside. He is saying, what I can do in Christ is bring you to justification. I can bring you to forgiveness and then begin this transformative work so that you would look at this and say, okay, here in Proverbs, there's a person who's driven by guilt where their sin hangs over them. And a guilt-driven life produces more sin. That a sin-driven life, it's just, it's going to make the wrong choices. But for the one who's been made pure, and, and that's flowing out of that, you begin to make the right choices. You begin to do what it tells us in Romans there, is you begin to do which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what a beautiful thing 
that God wants to invite you into, this life of being changed from the inside out. But it's important that you understand that's what God's looking for, because let's just be clear. If you're paying attention so far in this chapter, you're already getting it, where God says it's not enough that you just come to church. It's not enough that you just kind of go, I, I want to see your life changed. I mean, I don't want you just to go through this. And he looks at the wicked and says, hey, here they are. I mean, just the, the, the motives, they're arrogant, they're prideful, uh, they're, they're trusting in their lies, they're trusting in their power. And he says, that's leading them to make bad choices. Don't let it be you. And it's not enough just to say, you know, well, I came to church on Wednesday night or I did these things. God's like, I want to change you so that there's a purity happening. And, and what's happening out of your life is flowing from a true transformed life. And I love this. I don't know about you, but it causes me to want to step closer to him and say, God, I want that. That sounds amazing. I mean, if we're not just talking about trying to pretend to do good, but if you could work in me to will and to do for your good pleasure that it says in Philippians, that you could begin changing me so that it's not just that I am doing what's right, but it's like I want to do what's right. Boy, I want to make those choices. Then it invites us into a very different and a very beautiful life. That God's wisdom, it's flowing in a different direction than sometimes our world sees, and he's inviting you into a life that would be lived that way. May he do that in a powerful way. All right, well, verse 9. Better to dwell in a corner of a house stop than a house shared with a contentious woman. So he gives a highlight here, and really this is one of the, the Proverbs. It isn't two thoughts being shared just side by side. It's one statement. That he says it would be better, it would be so much better to literally live on top of a roof in a small corner than to, than to be in this space where contentions happen, of being with a contentious woman. Now, we've already talked about this in Proverbs a little bit, but here's where it just dives into it deeply. In fact, he's going to say it twice in this chapter. He'll say it here and again in verse 19. And so let me just try to say it very, very simply, but hopefully as clearly as I can. And I am speaking to ladies. I mean, obviously, that's where this proverb is coming across. And I just want to tell you that there's a downside to the good way that God has made you. There is a difference between men and women. God has made us different. And the way that we process things is different. Now, again, I don't want to make this overly like it's always this way because there's, there's, there's differences that work into personalities. But for the most part, for you ladies here this evening, you would recognize you're very different than the way that God has created men. You are very much easier a multitasker. You're much more easier to be more aware of things around you. For most men, God has given us the ability to be very focused. So that at times we could tune everything else out and do one thing. It's a beautiful way. It's a part of a de design that God has given men. It's a really, really good deal. For most ladies, that's not you. I mean, like right now, if I could sit down and ask you, like, how many things are you thinking about right now? And you would be like, well, let's see. You know, think about tomorrow, think about my kids, think about my grandkids, think about what's going to happen. I mean, you have a, I mean, there's just things processing and you're aware. Biblically, we'd find out that women are very often the most sensitive. They're the first at the, at the cross. Uh, they're, the, the, they're the first at the tomb. It's a beautiful thing. But there's a downside. The, the propensity that God has given women to be very sensitive can cross from a good sensitivity that would make you attentive and compassionate and caring, it can move into condemnation. It can move into being critical. It can move into being nagging. It can move into being judgmental. And that line is a destructive one. That The power, if I can say it that way, that God has given you as a woman can become to be destructive. 
And, and it's just powerful just to understand that. I mean, Proverbs is really clear in this and just says this would be a bad thing. And so obviously he's speaking and, you know, telling, you know, boy, you know, if you have a, if that's where you live, it would be better. <laughs> you know, go live on the corner of a house because that will destroy you. That will destroy you. And again, I would think that if you're a, a lady here this evening, you, I, I don't know if this resonates. I hope it does. I hope it doesn't come across as, you know, judgment. But I hope you sit there and say, I don't want to do that. If God has given me an ability to be sensitive and to be aware, uh, I don't want to take that awareness and use it to tear other people down. I don't want to become someone that takes what God has given me uh, to, 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 that could make me prayerful, compassionate, sensitive, gospel-centered, wonderfully working. I just don't want to move it to where I'm that person who's taking that and making it a bad thing. And so he invites us uh, just to see that, to see that that would become a destructive thing and may God rescue and, and draw away from that because the power that God has given women to influence life is so incredibly big. May God make it so. All right, well, verse 10, leaving that, tells us the soul of the wicked desires evil and his neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. So we dive back into this idea of motives. So we have this wicked person, the soul of the wicked person. He says he wants what's, what's wrong. He desires what's evil. And because of that, he says his neighbor, just those who are around him, those who would, who would be there, they find no favor, uh, that he has no compassion, that simply because of what this does, it again leads to these bad choices. So again, one of the themes of this chapter is just to cause us to see that. What, what happens? What causes somebody to be cruel and unkind to other people? And, you know, walking in that says, well, it, it's the soul that's desiring evil that would draw to that place that would lead towards destruction and hurting other people. And certainly, again, just saying, God, make it not us. Help us not to walk in that. Help us to be those who are able to walk well. <coughs> Well, leaving that, verse 11, when the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. So two things held in contrast here. One, you have a scoffer, someone who's doing the wrong thing, mocking, uh, it's kind of the opposite of wisdom, kind of the opposite of everything that would be there. And so he says, when that scoffer he's going to get punished. I mean, there's going to be consequences to his actions. There's going to be consequences to her actions that will do that. But if they receive that discipline, it has the propensity to make them wise. That, you know, you, you kind of learn from your failures, you learn from your mistakes, you learn from your correction. It should be so. It's not always so. We've talked about that other places in Proverbs, but it can be so. But the contrast is interesting. Because the contrast is when the wise is instructed, uh, he receives knowledge. Maybe the best way to think about this is it's almost as if God is looking at you and he's kind of saying that, that thing to you. It's like, we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. You know, if it's the easy way, then you're going to sit at church on Wednesday night or Sunday morning and you're going to hear his word and you're going to say, God, help me make good choices. May your word direct me. May, may you change me so that I don't have to make all the mistakes, so I don't have to learn everything the hard way, so I don't have to, you know, just, I mean, you can grow because you're listening, that you could say, okay, I'm going to receive knowledge, I'm going I'm to be instructed, and I'm going to grow, or you can go through the school of hard knocks, and you'll learn it because you go through the wrong things, and if you're responsive to that, again, if your heart's right, you're going to get corrected and be like, God, I messed up again. 
God, you allowed correction to come again. You allowed that to happen again. And it would have been so much better if I'd been, you know, more quick to learn that. And I didn't have to learn that from, from making a mistake. Now, I don't know, again, where this comes from you, but I'm just going to tell you where it is for me. I know what I want. I would like to learn it the easy way. I, I've known both courses. There have been times, honestly, where you can sit there and think God's word works. And it's like, man, phew. You know, that saves you from some choices. Like, man, I'm so glad that God's word helped me to see that before it happened. That is so good. God, your ways are good. And then there's been those other spaces like, man, I think I must have heard that like a dozen times and I didn't listen, you know. And, you know, I heard it at church, I heard it from other people, and then I made my own choice and then it, you know, failed or did something badly. And then you're like, I should have learned easy. And it should motivate us to say, God, I want to be one who is an attentive listener. Who, who would be that? And again, you can get wisdom one way or the other, but he's inviting us to be the one that would say, okay, I'm going to read the book of Proverbs a lot. I'm going to grow into the book of the scriptures a lot because I'd like to not have to make all these mistakes myself. May God make it so. All right. Verse 12. The righteous God considers, wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. So the New King James says the righteous God, but the word God there is in italics because it's not actually in the text. Uh, really, the, the, the text just says the righteous, or maybe even better, the righteous one. That being said, most Hebrew scholars look at this and they, they, they would say, okay, the righteous one, it's actually a title for God. And, and so it's why it's kind of put that way in the New King James Version. Most Hebrew scholars would look at it and say, yeah, that's probably what we're talking about because there's only one that's righteous. Uh, there's only one that is that. In fact, if we look at this verse right, he's the only one that can do this. He's the one who wisely considers the house of the wicked, that he looks through that and he overthrows them. He's going to overthrow the, the wickedness and the, and the wicked, that he is the righteous God. There's no sense that he would look at you and say, this is your plan. This is my plan for you. I want you to overthrow the wicked. That would not go well for any one of us. In fact, the scripture is really clear. We're not supposed to do that. We leave that to him. Vengeance is his. Justice is his. And so there's just, again, a comfort that would say, yeah, God is the righteous one. He's the sovereign God. He's the one that's going to deal with things. Uh, he is rightly doing that, and he's the one that you and I are meant to trust. All right. Verse 13. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. It's a pretty simple understanding. If you be that one that says, okay, I'm not going to listen to others, not going to listen to what they are, that, you know, what goes around comes around. It's kind of in one sense the idea that how you treat others, that will often flow its way back, which is kind of the golden rule, right? That Jesus told us the way that you want others to treat you, you treat them. That, you know, if you're wanting to be that person, that it would often work that way in life. And so it's a pretty simple premise that honestly is true. But let's add to it. You know, when we think about this and we think about what's being laid here, it's probably also an understanding of how you and I approach God. That if we want Him to hear us, then there ought to be a sense that we're doing right with, with others. I think about what it tells us when Jesus is talking about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and, and offer your gift. It's as if God's saying, you know, don't bother coming here if you're not going to go and make that right. You know, if you're, if you're not going to you know, listen to your brother, you're not going to kind of work in that, 
why would I listen to you? You know, there's a sense that you need to, in that sense, be made right, and there is a sense of being calling us to that, of, of dealing with our sin, dealing with the things that are there, and so certainly there is a place that we want to be those who, you know, are hearing what God allows us to hear and responding into the midst of it. All right. Well, let's try a couple more, and we'll probably end in a couple of verses, but I want to try to make it just a couple more verses, so just touching them briefly. Verse 14 is one of those interesting ones. It says, A gift in secret pacifies his anger, and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. We'll use blue because it's really a statement of fact. It's not encouraging, it's not endorsing it, nor is it really condemning it here. But he says, A gift in secret will pacify anger. And a bribe behind the back will deal with strong wrath. You know, we could in many ways look at this and say, well, you know, we could wish it wasn't so. Um, and, and thankfully, you know, you and I live in a culture that's been greatly influenced by Christianity that's very different than some of the other things that are happening around the world, though it's still present within our culture. But most people in our world would tell you, yeah, this is how you get things done. You know, the, you know, that, that, you know, the anger that you deal with in the world, it's not always righteous anger. The, the idea of dealing with anger is strong wrath. And sometimes, you know, it, you know, the best way to do that is to say, okay, well, you know, how do you get that undone? How do you kind of move away from that? Sometimes it's like, hey, what do we have to pay? You know, how do we, how do we, how do we get that done? And it is honestly a, a, a nugget of wisdom that works in living in this world. But again, it's not a statement of endorsing, nor is it condemning. It's just one of those things of saying, yeah, that's kind of how that, that the broken world works that you and I live in. And honestly, sometimes the, the most gracious thing is just to say, okay, hey, what do I have to do to get that taken care of? And then, it, you know, again, lots of interesting things there, but I will leave that because it's kind of a troubling one just to walk our way through. Let's end with verse 15. He says, It is a joy uh, for the just to do justice, but destruction will, will come to the workers of iniquity. I absolutely love this. And again, it kind of ties into a bunch of stuff that we've talked about this evening, about motives and, and things that are there, but hear it one more time in a very positive way. He says, What his aim is, is he says it would be a joy. It's a joy when the person who is just seeks to do just things. When a person who's right is seeking to do right things, it becomes this place that is just joy. It becomes this place where it's just this overflow of, of, of pleasure and joy, but very, very different if it, if it going the other way. I find myself thinking about Jesus when it describes him in Hebrews 1, says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So Hebrews is giving us to us and says, this is Jesus. This is the one that his throne's forever. He's a righteous God. He's the one that's, that's ruling and reigning. And he simply says this, quoting out of the Psalms, speaking of Jesus. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness or the oil of joy more than your companions. Wow. I don't know if you see Jesus this way. I don't know if you understand Jesus this way. Sometimes we're influenced by our culture and sometimes we're influenced by our world and we tend to think about Jesus and even sometimes righteousness as boring, as bland, as at times, well, yeah, you do the right thing and... Yeah, you do the right thing, and that's just the way it is, you know, and, and yet it's not really fun, it's not really good, but I just want to tell you, that's actually one of the fundamental lies. 
That's the lie that Satan began in the Garden of Eden that he has always been perpetrating, that somehow God is a killjoy, that somehow God doesn't want you to enjoy life, that somehow sin would be more fun than anything else, but it is not. The Bible's really, really clear. Sin is destructive. It's, it has a momentary pleasure, but afterwards it's, 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 it's horrible in that. But to do the right thing, to really do the right thing, it becomes joy. I wonder if you know something about this. I, I hope that you do. I hope some of the things that we've talked about this evening are at work inside of you so that God is purifying you, that if you're in Christ, he is bringing you to a place where your sin is dealt with, where you're being justified in Christ, and then he's beginning to do that Romans 12 thing, that you're beginning to be transformed on the, way, on the inside out, and then all of a sudden you find, I really like doing what God has for me. In fact, it is more fun than anything else I've ever done. You know, it's as if, you know, all the lies of sin, like do this and this will be fun. It's like if you've ever kind of walked this road, it's like it's actually not that much fun. It's like, you know, it's an actually, you know, you know, you, when you see what, you know, drunkenness does or drugs do, it's like it's not really that much fun. They look, they're not, it's not really fun. But if you do what's right, all of a sudden it's like this is, this is good. Like I'm, I'm actually doing what God wants me to do and I'm actually really enjoying it. It's really meant to be joy. That's how it's supposed to work. He says it's meant to be that way. It's meant to be joy. It's meant to be that way. Because the sad reality, the other side is not. He says destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. The word destruction is interesting. Uh, it's a Hebrew word that could speak of destruction or ruin or terror or, or brokenness or fear. And it probably has some sense as kind of this opposite of joy. That joy is this, but this is terror. Joy is meant to be over here, but this is terror. He says that's what's really coming to the, to the workers of iniquity. That's what's really you know, happening in the midst of that. And without spending more time on it because we don't have time, the contrast is fascinating. In one sense, he's saying if you do the right thing from the right motives, it's joy. But if you live the wrong way, it's empty and it's going to destroy you not just talking about the moment, but where it's going. And, and seeing in one sense the contrast is meant to be that because the joy that we get of doing the right thing, it's joy now and joy forever. That there's a, a sense of joying at what God has, and so there's a comparison both to the moment and, and to the end of it all, which is bigger than we have time to say. But I just want to tell you it's good. So this evening we've talked about a bunch of things, but certainly one of them is, again, God sees you. God sees you. He sees the motives of your heart. God tests the heart. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but that's not what God's after. He's after you. And if you're wrong on the inside, that wrongness will do wrong. It will make you cruel. It will make you, you know, where you tear things up. It will, it will lead to destruction in your life, and yet God would want to rescue you from that. He does that in Christ. Again, if you're outside of Jesus, we're inviting you to that. But if you're in Jesus, you still would recognize I still need that. <laughs> like, I'm still needing him to do that. Romans 12, 13, and me. Like, God, change me. Renew my mind. Begin changing it so that the person that's in here is, is doing the right things, not just because I should do the right things, because I want to, because I want to, and, and that he would give me that. And if you would walk in that, I just want to hold it to you, and I hope that you know something about it. I hope I'm only encouraging what you already understand, that you would discover this is a lot more fun than anything the world has ever offered. I mean, the world offers this idea that sin is fun. It's really not that much fun. 
I mean, you can go to any bar, you can go to any place and look at them and think, you guys don't really like you're having fun. I mean, not really, not at the end. But you could look in Christ and think, this is really fun. I mean, I get, to do with, I get to walk with Jesus, and I get to do the right thing. And if I'm doing that, there's a pleasure, there's a joy, there's a smile of God that God would tell of Christ. He says, because you loved what was right and you hated what was wrong, you have more joy. You have more joy than anybody else. And again, I kind of touched it a moment ago, and I just come back and say, I don't know if you see Jesus that way. Some of you see Jesus as cold and boring. I just want to tell you, that's not what the Bible says. He had more joy than anybody had around him. He had more pleasure than anybody had ever known because he did what was right. But he's inviting us into the same. It's like, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to love what's right. I want to hate what's wrong. And then I want to find joy. I want to find incredible joy. So let's end there. You can close your notebooks, your Bibles. Let's just pray that God would bring us into joy that he would bring us into the things that he has for us. We're going to worship and just seek that right now. If you have questions afterwards, just come up and ask. But right now, let's ask that he bring us after that joy. Father, I think about your word, and I think about its goodness. I think about the things that you would unpack and lay out to us, and I simply ask for it right now. Teach us to do your ways, O oh God. Do that Romans 12 thing in us. God, for anybody that's not walked in that sense through the first book of, part of the book of Romans, that they don't know you, that they've not come to faith in you and been saved. Lord, would you draw them tonight? Bring them to a full recognition of the gospel, to the wonder of, of, a, forgiven, of a forgiven life. But then bring us to a place that you begin to change us from the inside out, that we could prove what is good and acceptable and perfect and incredibly joyful. Teach us to do your ways, O oh God, from the inside out. I ask for it for me and all of us now, in Jesus' name.